Well, good morning and welcome to Friends Church this morning on a great day to come and worship the Lord together. Hopefully you received a program on your way in and in there is a connection card. If you fill that out and drop that in the offering plate, uh, it helps our staff out a lot over this next week to know who's here, so we appreciate that. If you're visiting with us, first time visiting, Thank you and welcome, and we ask that if you want to fill out your name and address, drop that in the plate too. Uh, We'll get you a gift this week in the mail, and we're glad that you're here. And we're glad to see everybody here on a a holiday weekend. You never know, people traveling and and doing all the fun things we do on July 4th. I know this was, uh, I'm Pastor Steve, I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and Kevin and Sally are away uh, on vacation with their family, and we're celebrating here. In fact, this this was our first July 4th weekend. Uh, here at, uh, in the Cleveland area. And so we did what you do. We, you know, picnicked and went to fireworks. I think it's Willoughby South High School we were there and saw some great fireworks and, and then spent a great hour and a half in traffic afterwards. It was, <laughs> it was great. But I hope you had a great weekend and celebration and, and picnicking and cooking out and, and family. And, and what a time as we celebrate our country. I think if my math is right, somewhere around 237 years as a country. And we're celebrating this morning. We celebrate when we come to worship because we worship in freedom. And, and we celebrate that. And so uh, we're, we're glad to be part of the United States of America. And we know it's a great country, but we also know it's not a perfect country. In fact, if you were here 40 years ago, and some of us were uh, around 40 years ago, you remember things maybe weren't quite so tranquil. In fact, the country was embroiled in a controversy and, and, a, and a scandal, and it was named after this building that you see here on the screen. This is the Watergate Complex. And many of you might remember uh, Watergate. And some of you that are younger, this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson. But Watergate was, let's just say, it was a mess. It was a mess that eventually brought down a president of the United States, Richard Nixon, had to resign in 1974 because of this. But actually, this summer, the July, not a few days from just now, July 13th, 1973, a man named Alexander Butterfield, one of the people on staff for President Nixon, um, revealed to the nation that the president actually had recorded phone calls and conversations since 1971. And so this was really, this month, this week was really the beginning of the downfall of Nixon and, and his resignation when those tapes came out. And we start, we heard names, names that you may remember if you're around Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean, and, and these names became commonplace. Even though we didn't have CNN, we still had news and we heard a lot was going on. But there was another name. There was another name that was very prominent at that time, and that name was Charles Colson. And in this picture here, you see uh, President Nixon uh, sitting at his desk in the Oval Office. And at the corner there is Charles Colson. Charles Colson was special counsel to President Nixon. Charles Colson had a nickname. And that nickname was Hatchet Man. You might be guessing that's not a great nickname to have. In fact, Nick, Charles Colson was known for other things. He was known as the evil genius to some. They said if you needed a dirty deed done, you would go to the Nixon administration, you'd go to attorney Chuck Nolson, Chuck Colson. And 
Chuck Colson was known as an evil genius and he was known as a hatchet man and he, his, own, he, his, own, his own self said, I was so important, so critical to the Nixon administration because I was so ruthless. He was quoted as saying, I would step on my own mother to get Richard Nixon elected, re-elected. And so it is amazing, maybe even a miracle, that in April 2012, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, in eulogizing Charles Colson, would say these words. He would say, Chuck Colson was one of the great Christian statesmen of our time. Christianity Today, in its issue that was issued in April, shortly after his death, said this. It was entitled, Remembering Charles Colson, A Man Transformed. Charles Colson went on to start a ministry that you may know, Prison Fellowship. After spending time in jail for seven months, he made a promise to God. He said, I won't forget these men. I will not forget their families. And he started a national organization to minister to those who were incarcerated. Another ministry that he started was Angel Tree that we celebrate and we partake of here at Christmas time where we buy gifts for the families of these that are incarcerated. Charles Colson, a brilliant mind, went on to write 30 books. Had such an impact on my life over these last 20, 30, 40 years is reading these books and the intellect of this man. And so I ask the question as I think about all this, what does it take to go from hatchet man to Christian statesman? What steps are necessary? What happens in a man's life for him to go from a hatchet man to one of the greatest Christian statesmen of our time? What is it in that life that is transformed as Christianity today would say? And so as I thought about that, as we think about it, fortunately, we have a very similar example in one of the disciples. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you know we, for the last five weeks, we've been on disciples. We've been walking through the 12 disciples, and I think this is number six. And we're up to a disciple, and his name is John. John. If you've been around, you've heard us talking about him because we've been referring to the fishermen of disciples. John had a brother, James, that Pastor Kevin spoke of a few weeks ago. John was a businessman. In fact, his fishing business, it says when Jesus called the disciples, Peter, James, and John, that James and John left their father Zebedee and their hired men. So they had some sort of thriving business. There's also a passage that says, and Peter was fishing with his partners, James and John. So they've known each other. These are guys that grew up together. And if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Peter, we talked about the roughness of fishermen, how tough they were. They had to endure long nights, hard days. They were gruff. They were foul, foul-mouthed. And I imagine all these things that we attributed to potentially Peter could have been attributed to John. Because we know, and if you were here a few weeks ago when we talked about James, they had a nickname too. Not hatchet men, but a different nickname. And in fact, we're going to find that this morning in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. 
This is the list of the disciples. We're not going to read through the list. We've read through those for several weeks. This is just the calling of John in the list. And it says this, G, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he, Jesus, gave them the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. When Jesus looked at these young men, he said, I can, there's something in their character, something in their reputation that deserves the name son of thunder. John, you are a son of thunder. And we have some scriptures here to back up some of the suspicions or what Jesus knew about these men. And a few of these we read for James, but we're going to go back and for just a quick review, a couple of these, and one of them's new. The first one was a review a little bit of, of a few weeks ago, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 39. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit at your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering? I must be baptized with. <laughs> oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Some of your versions says, yes, we can. Yes, we can. And we see John earning this reputation of a son of thunder. We see John, an ambitious man, an arrogant man, saying, God, yes, I can step up. And Jesus is here saying, you have no idea what you're asking. When he says, can you drink of this cup? He's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Jewish saying. It basically means, can you partake in what I'm going to partake in? And he doesn't say, we're going to partake in a grand celebration or the celebration of a championship or anything like that. No, he celebrates. He says, we're going to partake in some deep and agonizing suffering. Can you handle that? And their reaction is, hey, no problem. We're fishermen, remember? I'm strong. I'm mean, I'm tough. I can handle anything life throws at me. Arrogance, ambition. We see that in John. One we didn't talk about a couple weeks ago is in Luke 9, 45 through 46. Another example of this son of thunder. It says this, John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. <laughs> but Jesus replied, don't stop him. Anyone who's not with you, against you, is with you. We see in John here a jealousy. He's not part of us. An intolerance. An exclusivity, a prejudice. We're special. I'm special. I'm with Jesus. He's not. And we see this attitude of John that many of us maybe see in ourselves. An attitude that might have come directly from Charles Colson also. Pretty common in a lot of us. Finally, right after that, verse 51, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead 
to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. (laughs) Son of thunder, vengeful, hateful, intolerant. These Samaritans, they're half-breeds anyhow, and now they won't even let us come into their village. Lord, can we just get rid of them? Can we just do away with them? In fact, he didn't say, can we? He said, can I? Can I call down in fire from heaven? Just wipe them out. And I can imagine about this time, Jesus is thinking, what did I get myself into? <laughs> what am I going to do with these guys? Especially this John character. I had some big plans for him. But I tell you all that. And we think about this whole story and John and this angry and ambitious and intolerant and prejudiced and hateful individual. And yet I think about what I know about John. If you grew up in the church, if you went to Sunday school, if you sat in teachings and heard about John, if you went to school, maybe a Christian school, and you had teachings about John, or you went to college and you took New Testament and you heard about John, we, we always hear that John is the apostle of love. <laughs> John, ambitious, angry, hateful, but we know him as the apostle of love. And so, just like Colson, I think it begs the question. It begs the question, how do you go from a son of thunder to a disciple of love? How do you make that transition? What is the impetus? What is the transforming power that takes a person and makes them new, different. What can take Chuck Colson from hatchet man to Christian statesman and what can take John from Son of Thunder to disciple of love? To do this this morning, my sermon needs some help and you know that already, I'm sure. I need 12 disciples. Quickly, men, all right, one. I need 12 men right now, two, all right. I need, that means uh, three, Four, that means eight more. Okay, I'm not a very good at math here, so you just go ahead and stand up there. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I think I got ten, right? Which means I need two more men. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Two more men. Two more men. Okay, I got one coming. I got two coming right here. All right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay. Okay. Um, Thomas, just hold those up there. Um, Thaddeus. Um, James, uh, um, wait a minute. Who should be Judas? Uh, you know, if I gave it to any of these other guys here, people in the audience would start to think, that is, do I know something or, or, you know, but someone who's above reproach. 
Are you buying any I'm of that? Not, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Simon, uh, Matthew, I will just go back down here. Andrew, uh, Philip, Bartholomew, uh, James, Peter, sure. Peter. Sure, These, John. Oh, John. Okay, John. This, ladies and gentlemen, are your 12 disciples. Now you understand why Jesus was a little nervous. <laughs> These 12 men had spent three years with Jesus. They had been part of his ministry from the beginning. They had been part of watching him perform miracles, healings, of teaching. They'd been hearing all the, all the parables and everything that he'd been telling them. They had, they had seen him walk on water. They'd seen him calm a storm. They had been through all this with Jesus. And John was part of this group. But, but now the time has come for Jesus to go, to drink the cup of suffering and sacrifice. And it was gonna be a tough time. And if we start piecing together the scriptures from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we call the gospels, and start putting together the whole story, we start to see some events that I think affected John in a powerful way, as much as it did the other disciples. In fact, if we start reading that those last few days, the, Jesus called them together to celebrate the Passover. And they came in and, and you've seen the picture of the Last Supper. And it started off actually with Jesus. No one remembered to wash the feet. And so he starts washing the feet of the disciples and, and taking care of that duty. And then they start to eat and... As part of eating, he's, he takes some bread and he takes some, some wine and, and he says, you know, this bread is my body and this wine is my blood. And he start, they start passing around and they're thinking, what all is he talking about here? But he's, he's starting to talk about his suffering, the things he needs to go through. And then he starts talking about ugly things like denial and betrayal. John tells us in his writings that he was actually next to Jesus. And he laid his head on his shoulder and he says, Lord, what, what do you mean here? What are you talking about? I don't understand. And Jesus is talking about the things that are going to have to happen. <laughs> so they ask, well, who's it going to be? Who is the person or persons? Who's this denier? Who's this betrayer? And after they get talking about that, then they start arguing over who's the greatest. What is it with you guys? <laughs> who's the greatest? I'm about to suffer. Christ is about to suffer. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And so the book of Mark tells us that they sang a hymn and they left for the garden. Are you ready? We won't sing. Let's just go. So the disciples followed Jesus and they came over to the garden of Gethsemane. Come on down, everybody. We can. And Jesus is meeting with them, and he says, guys, I'm, 
My heart is full of sorrow and agony. This cup is becoming oppressive. And I need you to pray. I need you to pray and pray for me and pray and watch. So would you do that? And so Jesus leaves him behind and he, he starts to leave. And he says, well, wait a minute. James, James the Greater, one of the Jameses. James Greater, yeah, that'll be you. John, Peter, my, my inner circle, can you come here? This is part of Jesus. This is not unusual. He had taken John and James and Peter on many occasions and they had they'd been together. They'd been part of the group that he had trained for, for the work that needed to be done. These were, the, these were his close cohorts. Yes, they loved each other. And he said, guys, I'm, I'm sorrowful. I'm, 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 my spirit is oppressed. Can you, can you pray? Can you watch? And I'm going to go. And, and he said it went a short distance. And Jesus went and prayed. And he came back. Yeah. They were asleep. And he says, guys, it was just a short time. Couldn't you watch him pray? And he went again. And actually the Bible tells us in one of the passages that his blood, his sweat was like blood. He was sweating in such agony. He was, he was praying in such deep agony. And so he goes back again and he finds him asleep. Guys, can you pray? Can you watch? He goes back again and he prays and he comes back and they're sleeping. He goes, guys, and he, everybody's tired. It's been a long day. It's been a long week. And so, he says, the time has come. And so the disciples, they get together again, except we have one a little bit out of place here. Um, Judas, he'd actually left the crowd, and he had gone and recruited some soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. And Judas came over, and with a squad of soldiers, there could have been as many as 2,000 to rest the man of peace. And um, Jesus I'm said, not gonna kiss you, Steve. <laughs> Yeah, he says, Judas, will you betray me with a kiss? And we're not going to do that this morning. <laughs> no. Friendly hugs is all we get here. But Judas did his deed, and he betrayed the Lord with everybody watching. And the Bible says he became so distraught, he wanted to undo it, but it was too late to undo it. And so he went and he hung himself. You're dismissed. <laughs> At this time, the, they came to take Jesus. And actually, we're recorded of another incident. Where's Peter? Peter steps up. The other fisherman, the other Bravo guy, and he takes a sword and he sees the the servant to the high priest, and he, Malchus, and he takes a sword, and he cuts off his ear. And Jesus says, no, 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 we're not here for that. And he picks up the ear, and he places it back on Malchus. And can you imagine if Peter was brought up on charges, and you went to court, and they called Malchus as the witness, and he says, well, what happened? He says, well, he cut off my ear. Well, where is it? Well, it's right here. <laughs> um, Okay, you're, you're not, you won't be charged. <laughs> you know, that's. But then they took Jesus away, and Mark again probably records it best when he says the disciples in fear left him. They went. You're dismissed, all of you. They left Jesus. Whoop, except for 
Peter and John. The rest of you can go. Uh, James, you can go. Peter, you can come over here. When um, John, the Gospel of John, many times is referred to as an eyewitness account of Jesus. And uh, it also tells us that at this point in time, they took Jesus into the courtyard of Pilate. But there was a disciple who was known to the high priest. And so um, John, who's writing this, and many would never refer to himself, and we figure out it's John he's referring to, and church history tells us it's John. John was known to the high priest, and so he was able to get in, and it was him and Peter that stayed with Christ until John could get in, but Peter could only get to the door. And you know what happened to Peter? A little girl came up to him and said, are you with that Galilean, that teacher? He said, no. In fact, the Bible says he cursed three times, just as Jesus had said. And then it says he wept and left crying. We started off with 12. 12 eyewitnesses, 12 disciples. How many are left? One. John, the disciple who knew the high priest, who could get in and could observe and watch everything that Christ was going to go through. There was one disciple who could witness that mockery of a trial. There was one who could see the beatings and the scourgings. There was one who followed him to the cross. There was one disciple, John, who saw the nails in his hands and the feet, his feet, who saw the crown of thorns shoved on his head. One. And John was seeing Jesus' reaction to all of this. He was seeing the man who would not fight back, the man who would take on all that man was putting on him, and finally on the cross was bearing the sin of the world. And in fact, it's the Bible tells us that Jesus spoke to John and his mother on the cross. We have that scripture here from John chapter 19. It says, standing near the cross where Jesus' mother And his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said this, and he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. You know, Jesus was the oldest son. It was his responsibility to take care of his mother. And there was one disciple who had stuck through the entire time. There was one disciple who followed Christ. There was one disciple who was there and could record this for us. Thanks. Thanks. When we go through traumatic occasions, um, when people go through life-altering events, 
and then decide they're going to write a book about it. They don't do it right at that time. Many years later, sometimes, they say it's time to write. Church history tells us that John died at an old age, maybe into his 90s. The only disciple not martyred. Church history tells us he took care of Mary until her death. And we know that at some point in time, many years later, he wrote the eyewitness gospel. And when you do that, you choose your words very carefully. And if you noticed, in that phrase when Jesus was on the cross, John referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He actually referred to it five times. Right there, John 13, 23, John 19, 26. That starts, John 13, 23, is the first time we see this phrase. The only time in the Bible we see these phrases. The only person referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it starts there in the upper room. And it goes through this period that we've just talked about. And in wondering, what is John talking about? Is this his arrogance? Is he writing like the old John? I'm the disciple Jesus loved. <laughs> I'm the disciple Jesus loved. Peter's not. I'm the disciple Jesus loved more than all these other clowns that were up here and didn't hang through to the end. You don't understand what John is referring to unless you understand the tense of the verb. The tense of that verb is an imperfect tense in Greek, which means not just once, but again and again and again and again. So the disciple whom Jesus loved, what John was saying was a confession. He was saying, I am the disciple that Jesus kept on loving. I am the disciple that Jesus kept on loving. I I am son of thunder. I'm ambitious, I'm arrogant, and I've had all these attributes in my life. But Jesus never gave up on me. And he kept on loving me. So every time you see that phrase in the Bible, it's not saying Jesus loved me more. No, it's a confession. Jesus kept on loving me in spite of who I was. And John knew that. John had seen God's love. John had been close to Jesus. He had walked through him. And at some point in time here, John became the disciple who loved Jesus. And he followed him, followed him to the end. And you know what? I think God has a sense of humor. I really do. Because, you know, just months later, after Jesus had died and resurrected and gone to heaven and the Holy Spirit had come, we read in Acts chapter 8 that a revival broke out, and you'll never guess where, Samaria. A revival. In fact, Acts chapter 8 says the disciples in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. And I don't know about you, but I, I got this imagination of what's going on in heaven at this time. And I see God calls a meeting, it's God, it's the Holy Spirit, and, and Jesus, and, and God the Father, the Trinity's meeting together, and they're saying, do you see what's going on in Samaria? Do you see that? There's a revival. And I can see God saying, God the Father saying, yes, we got to get somebody there, and we got to get them there now. We need someone to disciple these folks. We need our best people. 
And I can see Jesus kind of smiling. Smile comes to his face and he says, you know what? Do you remember the guy who wanted to burn them all up? (laughs) Do you remember the guy who wanted to do away with them? The whole bunch of them? Let's send him. And I can see God go, oh, great idea, great idea. You know what the Bible says? It says that they, the disciples, sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And just a verse, couple of verses later, it says they laid hands on him and they received the Holy Spirit. Peter and John, two brash men, but men who would go into tough situations. Men who needed to be cleaned up, though, first. And God did a work for him and said, I'm going to use you. I can imagine the same conversation going on about 2,000 years later. The Godhead up in heaven, and they're saying, have you looked at the United States of America? They have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. 2.3 million prisoners in the United States. 95% of them will get out of prison. Two-thirds will go back. What are we going to do about that? Who can do something? Who can change this situation? I can imagine one of them pulling out their checklist of people going down through there. and I can see him coming to steer. And now he's not bright enough. He's not organized enough. But worst of all, we need to send him to prison for a little bit first. And he's a wimp. <laughs> so I can see him get down there and said, Colson, Colson. I can imagine the angels going, whoa, <laughs> hatchet man? You're going to send hatchet man? I can see God saying, yeah, we need to do a work on him. We need to love on him, but he's the man. He's got the connections. He's got the know-how. He can get things done. He's brilliant. That's the man. But we need to love on him a little bit. Charles Colson responds to God's love. Hatchet man becomes Christian statesman. John responds to God's love. (laughs) Yeah, son of thunder becomes the disciple of love. What happens when we respond to God's love? What are you known for this morning? What's your nickname? What's your reputation? I think if there's anything that John proves to us this morning is John proves that God's love is the world's greatest catalyst for transformation. John proves that God's love is the greatest catalyst for transformation. I don't know what it is in your life, what it is in your life that needs transformed. But when God's love comes, he'll make you, he'll remake you. When you offer all that you are, all your past, no matter how bad it is, he can make it holy, he can sanctify it and use you in powerful and new ways to change the world.
This morning, I think John teaches us the same thing that Chuck Colson teaches us, the same thing that I learned. When we step into the presence of Christ, and believe me, it's no more real to John back then than it is to you and me this morning. When we step into his presence and, and receive his love, we sang this morning, oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us. But he didn't leave, love us just to get us get out of hell free ticket. He loves us to change us, to transform us, to make us new, to make us useful for his kingdom. And John proves that God's love is the greatest transformation agent in the world. And he wants to do it for you just as he's done it for people for centuries, for millennium. God's love. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we've been blessed to be in your presence to sense your love and to know that you care for us in the same way you care for John, the same way you care for Chuck Colson, the same way, Lord, that you've cared for your, your people down through the years. And Father, that we can come to you as we are, bringing all of our imperfections. And Lord, you'll love on us. You'll help us. And you'll make us new people. And so, Lord, we bring those to you this morning. Father, whatever it might be, whatever that reputation is that we don't want anymore, that we want to exchange for a new reputation, for a new name, Lord, I pray that you would just this morning come in your power and your presence and be that transformation agent in our lives so that we could go out this week and we could serve you in new ways, in powerful ways to change our world, to change the world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.